It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steindl. Hello Nat, hello listeners. Hello Mike. So to borrow some of the words of today's guest... As, as we know, contemporary society faces multiple and interacting environmental challenges that require transformational change in the conduct of business. The most urgent challenge, obviously, given that we're in a climate emergency, is the need to combat anthropogenic climate change. One of the steps to achieve this is to look at transforming business regulation towards what's termed ecological regulation. Today we're talking to Professor Fiona Haynes, who has done some critical thinking on how to properly and effectively manage all the factors involved in an ecologically constrained planet. Fiona is a Professor of Criminology in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, an adjunct professor at the Regulatory Institutions Network at ANU. Her major current research projects include an analysis of how to hold multinational corporations accountable for human rights abuse, the social impact of coal seam gas exploration, and rethinking regulation in an ecologically constrained world. Hi, Fiona. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. So firstly, Fiona, you're a professor of criminology. I think this is a first for our program, isn't it, Mike? Yep. (laughs) So how did you get involved in environmental issues? I I often get this this question. So I uh, started off in criminology quite a while ago, and most of it was around um, juvenile justice, street crime, and I thought, I've been an adolescent once, that's enough. I don't want to spend my life studying this. Um, I came from a family of, of people who were involved in the professions and business, and I wanted to study crime and deviance in an area I felt I had some connection to, the world of business. So I looked at white-collar crime. So I, I started off down at the coroner's court looking at industrial deaths and corporate responsibilities. And then that took me inevitably through the world of regulation, and then to, okay, there is this environmental crisis looming on many fronts. How does that factor into the thinking about how to get businesses to act in the public interest? So that's a short version. Mm. So you started in (laughs) occupational health and safety and have gone to occupational health and safety for the whole planet. That's exactly right. (laughs) So speaking of white-collar crime, we actually hear the term green criminology. Yes. What's this aspect of your work? Okay, so green criminology was started by um, actually a good friend and colleague at the University of Tasmania amongst a number, Rob White. Um, And I uh, sort of know Rob's work. Green criminology is really trying to bring this environmental focus into criminology. It has a number of different sort of theoretical frameworks from a sort of a Marxist more to a kind of a liberal sociological Mm -hmm. frame. Um, I, I, I engage with it, but I've come at it from a different starting point from the white collar crime starting point so I'm in conversation but but 
probably sort of on a, been on a slightly separate path. But nonetheless, this, the intent is still the same. How do we deal with environmental crises and issues alongside social justice? And so that's, that's the meeting point. I just came from the social justice um, white-collar crime route rather than sort of directly into the environmental route. And so is criminalisation, is it a useful tool or concept for help protecting the environment? Okay, so criminalisation has two very distinct components. One is using the law to criminalise and the other is sort of criminalisation as, as what my green colleagues have called a social property. So, so, that, so that in a sense it's a public condemnation. So there are all sorts of ad hoc tribunals I think there are a number in South America sort of bringing corporations to account to socially condemn, but not it's not going through the legal system. So if you understand criminalisation in those two components, the social and the legal, the social can be an effective way of changing, changing I want we, to say morality. We, we've had a previous show on social licence. Is that essentially what you're talking about? In Part so it can it can comprise the social license is a whole other can of worms that we might talk about later, but essentially it's trying to change these. The social version is trying to change what is normal for businesses to do in terms of respecting the environment and respecting human rights. The law is a separate set of challenges in the sense that businesses have a very long history of doing two things. One, lobbying governments to ensure that the shape of the law doesn't criminalise them. And two, if they are caught in the crosshairs, making sure they've complied with the letter of the law but not necessarily the spirit of the law. Okay. you've, You've brought up the law... That's perhaps the biggest topic for today, ecological regulation. Can you tell us the the parameters and and what sort of considerations there are there? Okay. So I've been a very eclectic researcher. I've looked at occupational health and safety, competition law, um, health in hospitals, uh, product safety. The lessons from that is that each harm is dealt with instrumentally, one at a time, like pinpricks on the corporate body, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're in a situation where a number of those are competing and conflicting for attention at the same time as we have an environmental crisis. So ecological regulation is really trying to say, how do we think about a different starting point? Regulation as if we took seriously the fact we have one planet. Instead of the current version of regulation, which plays off one regulatory regime against another, planning against environment, environment against uh, economic growth, jobs against uh, environment and so on. And, and you have regulatory regimes that are built up to, to, as bastions, if you like, to protect the one good or to reduce the one form of harm. Ecological regulation is saying we have to radically rethink this if we are going to have regulatory regimes that that are conducive to long-term environmental and social sustainability as well as being economically viable. So what does that look like? So what does that look like? This is the million-dollar question, (laughs) right? Um, I will be very honest and say this is a work in progress. However, we, there are a number of, of sort of pointers that, that we've, we've written about and that we've, we've talked about. This has worked very much with my colleague Christine Parker from Law. So there are 
one of the first ones is to take this this term ecological seriously and say what we understand ecological regulation is that there will be no one way forward. There are multiple and competing. Just as environmentally, if you look at an ecology, there's all sorts of thriving ecosystems out there with multiple elements. There's going to be multiple ways forward, right? Um, we, want to, we want those multiple ways forward because of the need for resilience. So that's the first thing. The second is that... The whatever the form is, it has to respect limits. And therefore, you have to look at both how you can protect niche businesses that are trying to do the right thing and business writ large. So there may be social enterprises, cooperatives, for profit business, community enterprises, the whole gamut, the ones that are trying to do the right thing. How do we understand an environment that can help them flourish? So looking at the bottom up and then at the same time, Unfortunately, we're at a time that's not enough. We also have to look at regulatory regimes that have a chance of controlling the big end of town. What does that look like? So issues such as circular production, this idea that when a business is in the game of producing something, that the raw materials that they produce, that they use, then produce a product and the product has to be reconfigured so it, it, it then becomes the raw products for the next cycle. So everything is internal to the production system, right? So, so you're looking at the different possibilities both from the bottom up and also from the top down. So that's, that's – I'm not sure if I'm on the second or third point. <laughs> the final one is something that I think is, is, is very challenging indeed and that is – that you cannot separate out the need for environmental control, sustainability, justice from social justice, from the need to ensure that whatever the, the regime looks like, it deals with people equitably and allows for human flourishing. And I know there are a number of people who said that the climate crisis is too great. We have to put social justice aside for a moment. There are also people critically in the social justice space who say, I'm sorry, these people are dying, they're in Manus Island, they're in, you know, they're in dire straits. The environment just has to wait. We have to deal with the social first. Terrible dilemma, isn't it? It's awful. I I know personally Australia's actions on that just hurt me so much, but I just have to shut my eyes and say thank you other people for looking after that. Yes, Um, and and I don't think it means that everybody has to work on everything, mm. but in terms of coming up with with an ecological regulatory framework, the two inevitably will come together at some point. Mm. And at that point... You have to say, okay, how do we how do we deal with the contests and conflicts that come up, and how can we embrace that to ensure that both are dealt with? Fiona, you say in one article that social movements are engaging in direct action to shame and delegitimise businesses and business activities that are the biggest contributors to climate change, and their and their breaches of other planetary boundaries. Direct action is also being used to change public and government understandings and their narratives and discourses of, mm. around ecological issues. Can you tell us about the Carbon Majors Project and, and what the Union of Concerned Scientists are doing? Okay. So I, I, I have to be very honest that that particular aspect was Christine Parker's. So mm-hmm. I, I, will be, I will be, you know... I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> 
I, I, I would have I would have done my homework. No. Okay. So, as I understand it, what you've got are a number of of activist groups specifically trying to target the most um, egregious emitters through through various legal legal mechanisms. And maybe if I can bring it back to to the ecological regulation that we were talking about before. You have ecological regulation as a goal, but then you have to figure out what are the transitions? How do we transition from where we are now in order to get there? So in that context, then you look at things like the Union of, Compl- of, of Concerned Scientists at the Carbon Majors Project, and you look at how they are using the law and in particular where they are using the law. So what is uh, what is possible within the United States may not be possible within Australia. What is possible within Australia may not be possible within the United States. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that carbon majors, it's, it's, it's US-centric and therefore is, is, is sort of trying to find hooks, leverage point, anchors within, within the US legal system. We were going to go on with another question about whether there's a danger with this sort of action only limiting itself to the current regulatory context. Yeah. Have you got any comment on that? Okay, so what um, there are a couple of things. One is how uh, global and national uh, activist pressure, how that links in with the local. Mm-hmm. So how are these campaigns read at the local level. So how are these campaigns read at the local level? So how are they heard? So, for example, um, the one I'm more familiar with is the Lock the Gate, mm-hmm. and they, they certainly have an anchor into the local area, but they're read differently depending on whether local people want investment by coal and coal seam gas companies or don't want investment mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. coal and coal seam gas companies. And what can happen in those cases is is two things. One, the the legal strategies can be successful and there can be progress there and that can be important, but at the same time it may exacerbate some of the conflicts that are happening at the local level within communities mm. where the tensions and, and pressures that they're already under are exacerbated. Yep. And then you have that's where that social and environmental actually critically come together. If you've just joined us, we're speaking with Professor Fiona Haynes, who's Professor of Criminology at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And we're talking about regulation and the environment. So you suggest that the most prominent alternative is responsively rational regulation. (laughs) Um, Quite a mouthful. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what that concept is and, and how it could work in our current environment? Okay, so that's very much an academic paper. So I will I will deconstruct. Yes, and please make it, into, make it into make it into plain language. I suspect quite a few of our listeners are drivings <laughs> or haven't had their coffee yet. That's right. That's right. So I talked before about the kind of siloed bit by bit pinpricks of regulation that sort of come in different different forms, targeting different harms. Responsive regulation was an initiative put together by John Braithwaite at ANU and said that regulation has to be more responsive and bring in 
to the regulatory equation those who are most harmed. So a, a case in point, he did work on nursing homes and said nursing home residents and their families should be able to be part of the regulatory regime on nursing homes. What a radical very, idea. Yeah, which is very <laughs> – and, and so the, this idea of responsiveness – we took that idea of responsiveness and said, yes, we like that, but how do you listen ecologically? How do you bring mm. environmental concerns? Because uh, environmental concerns and social concerns at certain points can be intention. You have to have not only socially responsive but ecologically responsive regulation and that's where we sort of came up with this idea of ecologically responsive regulation. And I guess there's two issues there in in my mind. One is, as you say, how does the ecology speak to to inform that? Um, But also what sort of process do we, you know, our current processes don't have that, you know, reflection and response? No, we pretty, (laughs) there's a lot of deafness out there. Um, but also the process itself is, and the is process, not designed. The bureaucratic process is, 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 is deaf. But at the same time, this I think is where um, social protest at a number of levels comes into play. Okay, so you think that's, that's the answer to, to some of those issues? It's context specific. So you can't say that social protest is either effective or ineffective. It depends on the place it is happening. It depends on how it is happening. It, it, it can be working at a national level but backfiring at a local level. So unfortunately, I, I have no simple answers and that's not surprising. <laughs> and that's not I was surprising holding my breath there. Because, um, you know, cleverer people than I would have got there already. I was hoping you had a simple one for the next one too. Working for Beyond Zero Emissions, which recognised yeah. we're in a climate emergency, as an act- activist myself yeah. that believes it is an emergency, it's a crisis, and, and yeah. I'm actually willing to do direct action, how can we create the political will for appropriate regulation? What what clues can you give us or directions can you point us on that one? Okay. Because the, the political will in Australia is... Yes. It's the thing that's most seriously yes. lacking, isn't it? Yes, 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 it is, it is. I mean, I, I do think in this case creating a situation where it is not legitimate for governments to act in the current way that they are acting is is critical. I do think that that protest and action is part of that. I also think that using legal avenues as far as possible is essential. I think media, um, you know, in other words, what I'm trying to say are there are a number of different elements that come together. So if I go back to AGL's decision to exit from coal seam gas, which is the one that I've been doing research on, Why did they make that decision? Well, they made that decision for a number of different reasons. And these reasons are always, or or, or the context is always changing. But nonetheless, there was significant protest against the gas. There was, um, there were, uh, there was a, a... a financial and investor environment that was looking for AGL's transition strategy away mm-hmm. from coal. And originally they said we're moving into gas. That's our transition strategy. 
It was a small part of their operations. They moved out of of coal seam gas and they needed a new way forward. And they Mm -hmm. said, we're going directly to renewables. So looking at what companies, the company logic is saying, looking at the financial market and what the pressures are that companies are under to change their practices, what are the possibilities through um, through investor direct action, mm-hmm. what are the possibilities in terms of building alternatives from the ground up, what do the alternatives look like, how is the regulation situated around those alternatives, what is allowing them to flourish, what is standing in their way, Right? Can you lobby and can you do action creatively around the specific points? Like, mm. you know, a bit, a bit like being stuck in a spider's web, <coughs> right? Part of getting out of a spider's web is pushing harder, but part of that actually winds you tighter into mm. the spider's mm. web. You have to figure out what are the particular levers here that we need to clip. Clip here, clip here, clip here, clip here, clip here. Yeah, and I think that really validates, you know, BZE's approach to date of provide yes. investigating those alternative pathways yes. and, and trying to give other yes. avenues in a, in a positive yes. way. Yes, yeah. and chasing those through, but, you know, which BZE <coughs> does very well. But, that, and, yes. but a, a lot of those points you gave there were AGL business. Any more insights on the actual political side? Because I think right at the start you said something about making it illegal, but the very people that we need to make it illegal are the politicians who won't make, they make the rules. I think a number of the the concerns about ensuring the independence of, of, of not only politicians, but the public service so more the integrity, generally, yeah. the integrity, mm-hmm. the integrity issue is, is absolutely critical in this space. Yeah. And it's not, it's, it's not straightforward. It, but it is essential. If you are going to get politicians to act in the public interest, they have to be in in a psychological place, in a political space, in a sociological space, a social space, where they are not being pulled in directions that are, that, that are counterproductive. So um, things like a federal ICAC... <laughs> Things like ensuring transparency in donations. Things like, um, I mean, I, you know, in, in my dreams, I have sort of ideas about how do you make current politicians accountable for their decisions down the track beyond, beyond when they've left parliament. Yes. Yeah, yeah that would be I, nice, I, wouldn't it? <laughs> Your so, pension is limited by... Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, but, but I don't think we've, we've thought creatively <laughs> enough about this accountability mm. space. And it, it can be accountability in a positive sense and not just not just a punitive sense. As a mm. criminologist, when I think of accountability, I think about locking people in jail. And it's a bit, but actually accountability is much broader and richer mm. than that. It's about giving an account of your actions, giving an account of the, 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 the government's actions in a way that, that resonates and speaks to people's concerns. Flowing straight on from that political considerations, um, you raised two parameters of government that in reading them were crystal clear to me, but I'd never thought of it before, that basically um, the political issue has to do two things, maintain a stable economy and maintain citizen security. Can you talk to that? And that's what determines how they act and whether they're legitimate. Yes, yeah, so this is work that I did... Um, 
that I, I don't have time to go into the whole of it. But mm. essentially, I looked at the aftermath of disasters. What I found governed political response was keeping the economy going and making people feel safe. So how that works is that that is essential. Maintaining that political legitimacy is essential. But that security aspect, keep making people feel safe, isn't necessarily the same as, believe it or not, protecting the environment. Mm. And so you can make people feel safe without actually doing the environmental work that you need to do. In mm. terms of what we were talking about before and activism and, and pressure and pulling at the various strings, it's making sure the environmental crisis comes within that political risk agenda. It's it's amazing, isn't it, that keeping people safe isn't necessarily <laughs> keeping the environment safe <laughs> yes, for them. Yes. Um, so how far advanced are we in taking the current regulations and the actions against this ecocide that's occurring in to bringing that to a new set of regulations? Wow, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> Have and we got any hope? Are we, are we on the track at all? And we've got about I, a minute and a half left. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> to solve the world's problems. And more questions, yes. Yeah. Okay, so what I would say is that there are initiatives, they are small and they are niche. Right, so there are examples of people doing and and businesses doing uh, amazing things. Uh, they're often social enterprises, often uh, in the food space. Christine Parker, who who does some really interesting work, uh, and a colleague Rachel Carey, looking at sustainable food systems. And so there are people out there doing excellent work in that space. And, and the, the issues are what are the regulatory regimes that they're up against? And I, as I understand it, in some cases they come up and, and they're not allowed to do things that they would like to do because it's against uh, food hygiene standards, for example. So can we start picking away at those so that the people who are, who are trying to show us a way forward can actually be supported. And is, is there engagement from regulation makers in, in adjusting um, this process? As I understand it, Rachel Carey's currently doing um, a series of workshops with a number of, of local governments. So local government can be quite progressive in this space. State governments, um, farmers of various sorts, and what they're doing is workshopping different futures in this space to ensure that food production systems, particularly at the urban fringe where we've got a lot of urban sprawl, how can we preserve it yes. in an environmentally sustainable way? Yeah. So uh, so I think <clears throat> there are, but it's small and it needs to one scale up. Very quick one left if we can. The concept of cradle to cradle, is that yeah. as it intuitively sounds? Tell us about that. The ideal is as it intuitively sounds. So, So you would be looking at a situation where we no longer mine virgin land, we mine rubbish dumps, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what it means is that um, any company that produces something has a fiduciary duty to take that product back and reuse it in exactly the same, you know, not including mm -hmm. more materials. As I understand it, the European Union is moving towards circular production legislation. Now, oh, yeah, we probably have to wrap it up yeah. there, yeah. unfortunately. It, it is as it sounds. Yeah, that, oh, yeah. That's, we, that's we would love to yeah, keep and going. For and people can find out more 
from you or your work? Where? Yes, absolutely. At the University of Melbourne. Um, I've, I have a webpage at the University of Melbourne um, and I'm also happy to respond to people if they contact me directly. Okay, so mm. just Google Fiona Haynes. Yeah, uh, that's right. Mm. Terrific. So, listeners, we've been speaking to Fiona Haynes from the University of Melbourne. This Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thank you for listening and we look forward to speaking with you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.